It's good to be back. Somehow, against all odds, with the opponents being East Coast weather, my flight not taking off, Mm -hmm. me getting on the wrong bus, torrential rains in Cambridge, Massachusetts, somehow we have all three ad hoc members in the studio. So great to see you, Jack. It's it's just amazing to see you guys in person. And and what a time for us to be sitting in Lamont Library on Harvard's campus right now. Mm -hmm. This summer has been a summer of admissions madness. Whether it be Harvard or other selective universities, they've all come under unprecedented levels of scrutiny in the courtroom, in the media, and in the public conscience. And as we've experienced this barrage of news updates from you guys in Boston, Cambridge, me in Washington, D.C., and we think about returning to Cambridge in a month for actual classes, I think we know that it's possible that the end of our college experience could be different from the beginning. Or at least, if anything, the conversations that we'll have here today on the podcast with other Harvard students in the D-Hall or with people who haven't yet applied to college but will have shifted, for better or for worse. So that's why we've decided to do this ad hoc miniseries, Guilty Admissions, on the revolution or revelation, whatever you want to call it, that's happening in higher education right now. Each episode, we'll dive into the intricacies and nuances of one part of college admissions, And we'll try to reflect some of our own experiences as students at one of the institutions that is most in the limelight. So let's dive in and let's recap the past month. I'm going to start with what happened on June 29th in two separate but related Supreme Court decisions, both spearheaded by the six-person conservative majority which essentially dismantled race-based affirmative action policies. The plaintiff in both cases, one which was against Harvard and the other which was against the University of North Carolina, UNC, was called Students for Fair Admissions. And they were a group that argued successfully that an admissions system which favors applicants of a certain race, in this case, historically underrepresented races like African-Americans and Hispanic-Americans, violates the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. Instantly, there was a firestorm of diverging reactions from people on either side of the spectrum, uh, with former president and Florida man Donald Trump saying it was a great day for America, while Michelle Obama, former first lady, said that her heart breaks for any young person out there who's wondering what their future holds. But whether your heart is breaking or swelling based on (laughs) that development, it's far from the only one that has young people thinking hard about admissions. You're right, Jack. Uh... Because the end of race-based affirmative action has opened up a conversation about other types of biased admissions practices, the ethical arguments against them, and the legal ones. And none are more prevalent than legacy admissions. And a bunch of Massachusetts-based groups under a Boston-based legal nonprofit called Lawyers for Civil Rights, post-Supreme Court decision, filed a complaint under Title VI of the landmark Civil Rights Act of 1964 arguing that Harvard's legacy and donor-based admission system violates federal law by favoring white students, as 70% of donor-related and legacy applicants are white. If one preferential practice, race-based affirmative action, is unlawful, then how could we not get rid of other types of preferential practices? So it's possible that race-based affirmative action may have opened the floodgates that could lead to the end of other biased admissions practices as well. And against that backdrop, and even more recently, 
Raj Chetty, an awesome economics professor here at Harvard and a few of his colleagues at Opportunity Insights, released a paper about socioeconomic diversity in college admissions. The paper is making a ton of noise. All the major news outlets are covering it. Lots of people here at Harvard are talking about it as well. It begins with the observation that leadership positions in the United States are disproportionately held by graduates of a few highly selective private colleges, the so-called Ivy Plus schools, which include the Ivy League, Stanford, Duke, MIT, and UChicago. Even though only 0.8% of all college students attend one of these schools, a quarter of U.S. senators are Ivy Plus graduates, nearly 12% of Fortune 500 CEOs, and over 70% of Supreme Court justices from 1967 to the present. The paper also finds that children from wealthy families, and particularly legacy students, have considerable advantages in admissions compared to applicants with comparable standardized test scores. If you combine these two findings, it's not hard to see that these colleges currently amplify privilege across generations by admitting a select group of well-off applicants and then funneling them into the top positions of society. But this also means that changes to the admissions practices of these colleges could have positive ripple effects contributing to a more diverse leadership in America. So this paper has really strengthened the case for kind of reimagining the way that colleges approach admissions by using a ton of data to show just how absurd the status quo is and by providing pretty clear pathways to a better system. Yeah, Matt, I think you put it really nicely. I mean, in general, whenever a Raj Shetty paper is dropping, it's, it makes some noise. It's a policy nerd's dream. Um, Woj bomb equivalent for any NBA fans, for <laughs> sure. Um, Didn't catch that reference. No idea what you're talking Schefter? about. No. no. Just, it, it just goes right <laughs> over the head. Um, if you've seen the wake up, babe meme, it's, it's that. Wake up, babe, there's a Shetty paper. Okay. Um, Matt, you're, you're right that the Shetty paper is a goldmine. And there's kind of a million different threads that you can go down within the, I think, the broad takeaway that Ivy Plus colleges are amplifying privilege rather than narrowing it. But I think that we'd like to draw attention maybe in this episode to its implications for a select slice of college students that are featured very prominently in the paper, um, sometimes referred to by this acronym ALDC. Uh, which stands for recruited athletes, legacy students, students on the dean's list, and then children of professors or other faculty. Um, and legacy and athletes are probably the two letters that stick out most in news articles, the ones that people are most familiar with. Um, but I think we'll touch on all of them at least briefly. And let me start just by talking about legacy a little bit. Um, and I think, Matt, the qualifier that you offer is extremely important to recognize that these Ivy Plus schools where legacy is coming under strain both in potentially government complaints and also people are just paying a lot of attention to them now, represent a very small slice of the overall populace. I think that's really important to emphasize. Um, not all universities to start are selective. You know, we're talking about Ivy Plus, which are the most selective admissions rates that might be less than 15 or 10%, as low as I think 3.5% recently we've seen at Harvard, Stanford. Um, but in general, there are more than 4,000 colleges that are accredited in the US and only about 100 of those 4,000 accept less than a majority of their applicants. Um, so to start, it's a very small sample size. And then we know that there's a difference between private colleges and public colleges in terms of using legacy. 42% of private colleges consider legacy. Only 6% of public universities right. do. With that qualifier being said, and also acknowledging what you said in the Shetty paper, that Ivy Plus does matter for forming this American elite. 
I think it's it's hard to argue that legacy isn't regressive for one specific type of diversity, and that's racial diversity. Um, we know that the legacy bump in, in previous research has been compared to about a 160-point increase in the SAT. So it does have a, a significant impact on whether someone is admitted. Um, and this is from a, an article in Inside Higher Ed Education from a few years ago. About 40% of admitted applicants to Ivy League schools were white, um, compared to 68% of these ALDC students who are admitted into Ivy League schools. Um, so there's a higher percentage of white students among this special group than the general student body. Um, another source, uh, this is an activist group that's kind of calling for education reform called Education Reform Now. They found a few years ago that more white students are admitted to top 10 universities from alumni preference in part than the total number of black and Latinx students admitted combined oh, wow. under race-based affirmative action. So it's quite significant. Um, and some schools have in recent years moved away from considering legacy preferences. For example, Amherst College and John Hopkins, which I'm sure we'll get into. Um, since 2020, both of those schools have seen an increase in enrollment from students of color and first-generation students. Legacy students, by definition, cannot be first-gen, so that kind of lines up. Right. So that's kind of where I'll start out the conversation. Curious to see what you guys think. Yeah, Jack, I, I agree with you. Um, I think on the racial lens, legacy is unfair. Um, I think it's important to say I'm a benefactor of legacy. I have zero doubt that legacy helped me get into this school. Um, but I don't think that benefiting from the, the decisions of a university that I wrote an application to precludes me from criticizing that university for others that employ sim similar practices. So yeah, it's racially unfair. And as I mentioned before, I think it probably doesn't, doesn't hold up under the law. Um, the complaint, as I mentioned, was filed under the Civil Rights Act, which states that, quote, no person in the United States shall, on the ground of race, color, or national origin, be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. So based on that, it seems like a slam dunk case. Harvard's not abiding by the act, but Harvard has an out. If Harvard can show that a practice like legacy has a, quote, manifest relationship to the education in question, that the practice is required by educational necessity, then legacy can still be legal, even if it discriminates against certain racial or socioeconomic groups. And finally, there's a last little caveat. The complainants would have one more chance to strike down legacy if they can offer an alternative that would meet that educational goal without the discriminatory effect. So I, I think let's start at Harvard's argument. Do you guys think there is an educational necessity for discrimination? And if there is, is there a way to get that educational necessity without discriminating? So I'm, I mean, I'm highly skeptical about this educational necessity argument um, on a couple of grounds. One is that, I mean, if the argument is it's a necessity from the standpoint of procuring donations in order to better serve the function of the university in a variety of ways. I mean, we can go back and forth about the evidence on um, donations. There are some studies that say there is some relationship between um, legacy policies and the degree to which uh, that university receives donations. Others have found no statistically significant evidence of a causal relationship between the two. When Johns Hopkins got rid of legacy admissions, it actually has since seen an increase in donations. Obviously, we don't know whether that's more or less than in an alternative world in which 
they hadn't gotten rid of legacy. Right. But I think it's hard to believe with an endowment, especially in the case of Ivy Plus schools that have enormous endowments, that there's going to be this crisis of funds plummeting that's going to undermine their educational mission if you eliminate legacy. And that's particularly true if we think that some of the movements that are emerging right now about, you know, maybe some people being upset about legacy admissions and potentially withholding funds and donations on that basis. It's not entirely clear to me that there's a strong case to be made for the donation-based educational necessity of legacy admissions. Yeah, Matt, I think I broadly definitely agree with you. I I think I want to follow up two points that you raise. The first, just to offer a little bit of kind of the the research debate on the impact Mm -hmm. on donations if you take away legacy. There's not a lot of good, I think, real-world case studies apart from what you mentioned, you know, studying something like JHU. Um, But those, obviously, the sample size is not great if you're trying to be empirical. Um, There was an interesting study that I came across that was done in 2013. Um, It was a study about donations from alumni of a single-sex college. So this was a women's college. And it was essentially asking the question that if... uh, two parents, one of them who went to this school, had a teenage daughter as opposed to a teenage son, which is consequential in this case because only a teenage daughter would be able to enroll at this all-women's college, whether or not they would be more likely to make a donation. Um, They did find that the parents with teenage daughters were more likely to make donations of at least $5,000. Notably, and again, this is only one study, this is at one school, that finding didn't hold for donations that were smaller than $5,000. I haven't looked at the data on hmm. Ivy Plus schools or major institutions as far as how big their average gifts are. Uh, but 5000 is is starting to get somewhat sizable. It's not 400 million Ken Griffin. Um, <laughs> but if that's a yearly donation and people do that repetitively, that's starting to become significant, I think. So that's one study that perhaps supports the, the idea that ending legacy could hurt donor funds. Yeah. However, as you mentioned, there's many conflicting voices. Um, there was an op-ed that the Crimson published in 2014 by someone who works in uh, the education field, Evan Mandery, um, who said that there's no evidence whatsoever of any link between legacy preference and giving. And he also mentioned several studies that show there's no correlation. And he also raises MIT as a a real world example. Um, What's their endowment, 25 billion? (laughs) I think it's, yeah, north of 20 billion, maybe less than half of, of Harvard's. But I think I'm with you broadly. Even if we don't have a clear research consensus as I mentioned, Ken Griffin last year, or, or sorry, earlier this year, gave a donation of $400 million, and I think to Harvard. And that was quite notable because, correct me if I'm wrong, that was a no-strings-attached $400 yeah. million dollar donation, correct? Yep. Which is not always the case. Yep. With Rarely. Many, many alumni donations will make donations for a specific cause. Right. And it's not necessarily build a building with my name on it. It, it might be. But it could be I want this money to be allocated towards financial aid. I want yep. to build a new engineering right. building. The engineering building is named after John Paulson at Harvard, for example. Um, so that was no strings attached. So there's right. nothing stopping Harvard from taking, for example, 200 million of that donation and pouring it all into financial aid. So I'm, I'm right. with you quite broadly that schools can make up for it. Um, and yeah, I think there's a compelling case that they, they should make up for it in other ways. I'll add, I'll add one more statistic to that because I, I just think it's the most unfathomable of them all. Um, Legacies dropped at Yale from 24% to 13% over the past couple of decades, and yet alumni giving increased during that time frame, which is just crazy to me, because why would you give to Yale? I mean, in general, uh, yeah. 
<laughs> I mean, why would you go to Yale? Why would you go to, to Yale? Why would you give to Yale? All right. It's just pretty crazy to me. But yeah, uh, that's just it's a little pushback on <laughs> a lot of respect for Eli on on the evidence that um, legacy has has a big effect on uh, on donations. The other finding, uh, which again speaks to the kind of absurdity of framing some of these admissions preferences as being in line with long-run educational attainment or long-run societal attainment, is this remarkable finding at the end of the Chetty paper, which is that you can end legacy preference, you can remove non-academic the, the non-academic rating advantage that goes to wealthy students, and you can equalize the parent income background for recruited athletes, meaning recruit a more socioeconomically diverse group of athletes. And you would actually increase the share of students achieving some of the top positions in society that we talked about before, like right. Rhodes Scholars, um, Fortune 500 CEOs, etc. I think Jason Furman put this really well in an article, another economist here. Um, at some point, there really would be a trade-off between equity and excellence but elite colleges aren't anywhere near that point. Right. In other words, if you care about equity, then you should care about diversifying the Harvard class. If you care about excellence, you should also care about diversifying the Harvard class. Yeah, and I'll say, Matt, it, it sounds like a beautifully elegant solution, but I think if you're talking to a university administrator, they'll tell you, A, perhaps ending legacy admissions isn't as easy as we think, and we'll get into that. I think especially, though, the last two that you mentioned, which we can talk more about, which is, counteracting the non-academic boost that wealthy students seem to get and then equalizing athletic recruitment more across socioeconomic status, those could prove to be difficult practically. Um, because, I mean, if we're talking about equalizing the non-academic rating, holistic admissions has really emerged as this, this buzz phrase and this, like, it seems to be a serious mantra that Ivy Plus and other selective admissions really embrace. And then you're talking about seriously editing these non-academic parts of the admission yeah. to get more of that socioeconomic gradient. Yeah. I, I think universities might also respond to you and just say, you need to give legacy a little bit of time. It's working its magic. And over the next couple of decades, uh, because minorities are getting into colleges and are attending colleges at a higher rate than they were decades before, that eventually legacy will catch up um, and, and support and create intergenerational wealth between uh, whites and also a bunch more minorities and, and people of, of different socioeconomic backgrounds. Just the problem is it's not happening fast enough. Yeah, As I mentioned before, it's still 70% of, of legacy applicants and donor-based applicants are white. Yeah. So if it doesn't happen fast enough, then, then uh, we, we need to take other steps. I mean, similarly, I, I think you can could compare it to the original window that was offered for affirmative action, I believe, by the Supreme Court, if I'm correct of 25 years yeah, right. that they thought that pre-college differences in, for example, racial economic equity or educational achievement could be narrowed and then affirmative action could be done away with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're not seeing that move at the pace it can be. And, you know, we could do three episodes on the K-12 school pipeline. Maybe we, maybe we will. I'm just going to raise, I think, one other argument in, in favor of at least keeping legacy for some time or something that people really emphasize, I think, at the university administrator level. For example, uh, Dean at Harvard here, Rakesh Karana, has talked about this, about kind of the intergenerational community. Yeah. Our legacy acting as a bridge from older Harvard students of past generations to newer Harvard students in the future. 
I am going to quote, this is a, an op-ed that was written by a former university president, I believe it was the president of George Washington University in the Wall Street Journal. Um, he says of the children of alumni, they wear the sweatshirts, they display the logos, but legacies are raised with such pride from infancy, like mother's milk. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm skeptical. I mean, so, so the, the argument is like, you're more sort of involved in the community his, or, or yes. you're, you're more of a beneficiary of the community. I don't, I don't I really think, understand. I think his argument, if I can try to explain his bizarre phrasing. Without straw manning. Yeah. Without, without straw manning. Is that when your parents went to the same school that you end up going to, you experience this groundswell of pride that maybe can be transmitted to other students. I think he makes a oh. direct connection to school spirit. Okay, right. And this is related to intergenerational community. Maybe it's a specific fringe benefit. I think you can maybe argue that at certain schools, like the University of Michigan, there's an upswell of school spirit. Harvard doesn't have school spirit anyway. Right. I think, I mean... Yeah, we don't have... So I, it doesn't apply to Harvard, clearly. I think a better solution than legacy is just to get a good sports team. And That's, then, and then uh, maybe we'll get we'll to that later, though. Yeah, I think yeah. we're going to talk about maybe we can fix that in other ways. Um, but may, maybe more, more substantively, is there anything, though, to the point that there's kind of this passed down legacy that is, that is appreciated? And I know there was... A uh, controversial comment made by a Princeton professor that kind of makes this ex- extreme point about the class implications of having legacy students and then students from very low income backgrounds at Ivy League schools. He pointed to that being beneficial. Is is there is there anything in this muck of kind of intergenerational arguments that we can support? I don't I don't think much. I mean, yeah. I I think a lot of the intergenerational community engagement kind of argument usually leads to some sort of argument about money. And we've already talked about that a little bit. And just having some sort of fealty with other Harvard grads, it doesn't really add up to me. And when you compare that to the diversity you could get by just getting rid of legacy admissions, it's a much greater impact um, that seems a lot more important to me. Yeah, 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 I do agree. Than like a high five on the subway. I'll just just throw in one more thing about um, sort of a more subtle point in the case for getting rid of legacy admissions, which is, I think it's not only important that admissions are fair, it's also important that they're perceived to be fair. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it's important now that elite universities make clear that they stand for fairness and meritocracy. Mm-hmm. We're, we're living in a time where people are extremely disillusioned with the university system. And a lot of that is political in a variety of ways. But I think that disillusionment is um, very dangerous, uh, and you know, I would wager that there's a certain perception of unfairness, a kind of resentment that plagues schools like the ones that we're at, and that can only be exacerbated by these admissions practices that admit people from wealthy families or on the basis of their last name. All right, so why don't we move on to the to the A in the ALDC, talk about athletics a little bit. Um, a lot of people take issue with preferences for athletes for similar reasons that they take issue with legacy admissions, which is on the grounds that they also privilege white, wealthy applicants. Um, at Harvard, for instance, just under 70% of recruited athletes are white. They're also disproportionately wealthy, which I think is unsurprising given the costs of elite training in sports. Um, 
I'm going to try to distill a few of the proposals to kind of set the stage for this discussion of what people are saying can be done about athletics. In addition, of course, the proposal that you just change nothing. That's, I guess, the fourth one. But um, here, here are three of them. One is kind of the most extreme proposal is basically get rid of all college athletics at these schools, um, make these kind of purely educational academic institutions. Um, I don't think this is gaining so a lot no of traction. Harvard Yale game. No Harvard Yale game. I don't think people are taking that proposal particularly seriously. The middle ground proposal is the proposal of former Harvard president uh, Larry Summers, which is to reconsider ad- admissions preferences for those who excel at what he calls aristocratic sports, mm. uh, which, you know, presumably rowing, you know, tennis, I guess, water polo, sport, sailing, sort of expensive, right. expensive um, sort of elite sports. The third proposal, um, which is the one sort of assessed by the Raj Chetty paper, it's important to remember that the Raj Chetty paper isn't actually making any normative prescriptions. They're just kind of assessing the facts and the data and then presenting that to the relevant policymakers. Um, but, but the idea that they consider is the prospect of somehow recruiting a more socioeconomically diverse group of athletes. Um, and I mean, they don't really focus on race, but potentially also a more racially, presumably also a more racially diverse group of athletes. Uh, obviously, this can't be done explicitly through race conscious admissions anymore. That's gone now that affirmative action has been overturned. Uh, but, you know, there might be some other ways to do this, you know, spending a little less time recruiting at elite athletic academies, um, diverting your attention elsewhere. So these are some of the proposals that are being made. Yeah, I, I'm kind of partial to sort of mixture between the second and third proposals uh, you talked about. Yeah, these these aristocratic sports or country club sports, it's kind of insane how white they are at places like Harvard. Sailing. 85% white lacrosse. Um, I didn't even know we had a sailing team. Right? Like, yeah. I mean, I mean, I guess there's the Charles River. I mean, it makes sense here. But yeah, that's pretty, pretty eye-opening. Pretty yeah. high. And like, skiing, 82% white. There, there are a bunch of sports that like require a lot of training and a lot of equipment when you're young um, and then end up at Harvard being super, super white. So I'm, I'm, yeah. and I'm to, to be clear, and I think you're saying this kind of implicitly, I, I don't, for me at least, there's not a problem in a vacuum of a sport having a majority of one race. Right. I think what needs to be said and what kind of underlies all of what we're saying is that college admissions is zero sum. So 10 skiers who admitted seven out of 10 who are white are essentially taking spots that could be offered to a much more diverse pool of applicants. Right. Um, and yeah, I don't think we should get rid of them altogether. Maybe make them club sports. And then other uh, larger sports that are not the aristocratic uh, sort in which Harvard still recruits from white uh, backgrounds much more than the national average or these elite institutions do as well. That's when it's it's their opportunity um, to go to different neighborhoods um, and not to go to private institutions all the time and recruit athletes uh, who are from uh, other racial backgrounds. Yeah, I wholesale agree with you, Jaden, and I agree that it doesn't have to be a a pick between one of these three policies, I would probably agree with both of you that the first one doesn't seem feasible, and it's or desirable, in my or des- or desirable as a sports fan. It would I think it would be a tragedy to not have sports at so-called elite academic schools. Um, I don't think the sole point of Harvard is to produce academic excellence. I think, as was noted on this daily podcast that I mentioned before, college athletes. I think we can all agree from our experience are some of the most 
impressive individuals you'll meet. Yeah. I mean, yeah. to, to achieve such a high level of excellence at a sport while achieving excellence yeah. in the classroom is, is truly impressive. Mm-hmm. However, I, I think if colleges adhere to a couple important principles before they go about reforming, I think one that's important to mention is gender parity. Yeah. If you're going to cut down on sports, I think it's it's wrong unambiguously to cut down on one sex sport versus another. Uh, I believe it was Stanford a few years ago that proposed cutting their women's fencing team, and that provoked, I think, a, a justified uproar because they weren't going to cut the men's fencing team. Right. Um, I, I think you also have to commit to the principle that athletes who are currently at these schools will not be affected, which I think is, is pretty pretty easily intuitive. Then I think if you adhere to both of those principles, it is possible to have some Sometimes it'll be awkward and difficult conversations about downsizing at sports at schools that have many, many, many teams. And I think the Ivy League is really where to start here because Ivies are a little bit unique compared to schools that are bigger, possibly less selective because the Ivies don't offer athletic scholarships, which, you know, has many effects. But one of them is that financially, these schools are able to have very large athletic programs. Um, I believe one in five about Harvard students is recruited athlete. Harvard has 42 intercollegiate sports teams, um, making us the largest D1 program in the country. Yale has 35, Princeton has 38. If you compare that to example, for example, Ohio State and UMich, uh, which are two powerhouse schools when it comes to sports, they're also both public, they have 31 and 27 sports teams respectively. Um, and I think it's, it's fair to say that part of that gap is that Harvard does specialize in some of those aristocratic sports you guys mentioned. So I, I don't think anyone should, should suggest that having a, a champion squash team, for example, or having a champion golf team doesn't have value. Definitely. But as you mentioned, when it comes to the trade-off between ec- equity and excellence that Jason Furman represents, I, I think most people could come around to the conclusion that trading off for more equity on dimensions that we think are important, whether that be racial equity, socioeconomic equity, equity of academic skills, is ultimately more important for a college's mission than excellence in a sport. It's not a perfect trade-off, but I think in this zero-sum game, it's a trade-off that colleges should make. Yeah, yeah. I think the trouble is that, I mean, there's, there's essentially a huge collective action problem when it comes to any of these schools acting unilaterally to diversify yeah, their absolutely. sports teams in whatever way it is by recruiting from people, people who might have had less elite training, who might have equal potential in the sport, but who by virtue of having fewer resources devoted to them or being trained in less elite academies aren't going to enter the schools at necessarily the same starting point as those who were in those elite academies would. Um, and so I, like the only way I could envision something like that happening where kind of these schools move to a more socioeconomically or racially diverse recruitment of athletes would be that it's kind of done in unison in, unison in some way. Yeah. Um, but we know that Historically, that doesn't go too well because the Ivy League's been accused of, of being a cartel before when it comes to Admission, um, yeah. you know, elim- eliminating athletic scholarships or, yeah. or a variety of other forms of collusion. Yeah, financial aid. Financial aid. Certainly come so up, yeah. there, there's always difficulty of asking you know, one university to kind of strike a compromise or, or change in some way if they don't have reason to believe that others will follow suit. Yeah, and I think uh, to just add an example to that, I think trying to move away from early admissions was something that I think maybe Princeton Princeton, or one other Ivy League school tried to do. No one really followed, and now we're kind of back to the same status quo that's existed for some time. Um, I agree with you, Matt. I think it does take one school that's a leader and other schools to follow it. Um, I would hope that JHU and Amherst and Wesleyan, those universities can be seen as forerunners and maybe leaders for other selective 
in universities when it comes to legacy. Athletes will be a, a different thing entirely. Also, just to float out one related proposal to, I think, the three that you mentioned, and this gets, I think, a little into the weeds of athletic funding at schools. At kind of powerhouse sports schools, for example, Ohio State and Michigan, a lion's share of revenue from the athletic departments come from major sports like football and basketball, simply because the reality of TV ratings and also ticket sales. That's, to my knowledge, not as big of a factor at Ivy League schools, for example, um, because one, the level of our play is not nearly as high, and two, we simply don't have the TV rights that a Big Ten athletic school does. There could be an argument, if it's possible to prioritize high-revenue sports like football and basketball without necessarily drastically cutting back other sports, but find some way to change recruitment, which I think could make recruitment more diverse, for example. If you recruit, for example, football players from a more diverse regional perspective, let's say. Yeah. Try to take away preference for private schools that may have great football teams but are not racially diverse or socioeconomically diverse. Make the football and basketball teams better and try to generate revenue from that that could then be redistributed to lower revenue sports. I know that's something that a lot of bigger schools are dealing with Mm -hmm. in the attempts not to cut lower revenue sports. They're trying to really milk as much revenue they can out of of big sports. It would obviously be a very big cultural strategic shift for a school like Harvard or Yale, which I think we can all agree. I've been to maybe three football games. Apart from my work for the Crimson, um, love covering (laughs) football. What's the Crimson? the the Crimson is is a a lesser known a lesser known student newspaper um, than the Harvard Political Review, um, but there's not a lot of enthusiasm at the student body level. So maybe a cultural shift like that could have some real impact. So I think we've covered pretty substantively the A and the L. Let's mention donor or dean's list, excuse me, uh, dean's list students, and then also the children of faculty. And just to be clear about the definitions we're talking about, dean's list refers to various different strategies at different schools, but essentially students who are put on a special list made by the dean of admissions, usually based on coming from families that have made large donations, coming from families that are seen as very important to the university's legacy, various usually financially backed reasons like that. And the children of faculty means professors' children, professors' relatives. This could also be faculty lower than a professor level. Um, So what are our general thoughts on these types of preferences? And obviously qualifying this with the magnitude may not be as great as the A and the L. Yeah, I want to start by saying that the dean's list, the donors, they probably take up too much of the Harvard class. in 2019, 192 seniors, or over 10% of the class, was on the dean's list or the director's list, which is uh, a similar list. So a huge percentage. So was class. that 192 you said out of the whole student body, or no, of the, sen- of the, for, of the senior oh, class? Oh, of the senior class. Of that one and class. Yeah, for context, a, a senior class is usually about 1,800. Yes, yeah, yeah, something yeah, like between that. Between 1,700 and 1,900. Right. So it's like it's a pretty large percentage of people who the college thinks will donate or has already donated a significant amount of money. So I think that's too big. I do think there, though, there's like some sort of argument that can be made for the tippy top of those donors um, because that money can have a real impact on the school and then other activities the school takes. We mentioned Kenneth Griffin earlier. Um, 
who just made a crazy namesake f- of the Graduate School of Arts and Sciences. There you go. Um, now the namesake of the Graduate School of Arts and Sciences after he made a $400 million donation earlier this year. But he also made uh, an $150 million donation back in 2014. Wow. That was not for anything Harvard wanted. It was specifically for, for financial aid. And today... Uh, supports 228 undergraduate students. Um, wow. That money specifically. Yeah. So I th- I think it's definitely fair to say that, it, I, I think it's a fair trade-off that if Kenneth Griffin wants to give a couple hundred million dollars so a couple hundred students can go to Harvard, that maybe we let in his, his grandchildren, yeah. his great-grandchildren one and day. And to be clear, I think that that can still align with your general proposal of narrowing the scope of the dean's list. Yeah, 190 I mean, is a large I mean, I, I haven't looked at, yeah, the history of large donations, but that's got to be up there. I mean, uh, this is a graduate school, but at NYU's medical school, Ken Langone made, I think, a donation in the magnitude of hundreds of million dollars that allowed medical school to be free for everyone who attends the yeah, NYU. that's big. Ken Langone School yeah, of Medicine. Exactly. Um, I think we can agree those are consequential changes the ability of a college to offer equal opportunity to everyone. However, whether that list should be more than 10 or 15 students, which maybe is the upper bound on the number of $100 million donations a college could solicit, I think that that's pretty reasonable. I think it's also, what makes it a little grosser is like the bluntness to which it's communicated um, among among Harvard staff. There was this email that came out in in like, I think the recent uh, Harvard admissions trial from former Kennedy School uh, Dean Elwick uh, to the Dean of Admissions, Fitzsimmons. And this is not a love letter. Quote, once again, you have done wonders. I am simply thrilled about the folks you were able to admit. Redacted and redacted are all big wins. Redacted has already committed to a building. That's like that's to the Dean of Admissions. Yeah. Um, so they're not shy about it. Right. Um, it's not a love letter, but it's getting amorous. Um, wow. And I think it's, it goes to show how much more we know, however you feel about the Supreme Court decisions, the decisions themselves, I think it's beneficial that we have a lot more information about how admissions decisions work, which were historically cloaked in layers upon layers of secrecy. We didn't even know about, for example, uh, the different scales that Harvard, we had, you know, rumors, details from leaks. But we, we know much more about Harvard and other schools now than we did before. Um, but yeah, I, I agree with you that it's it's quite garish, I think, for administrators to be so explicit about buying one's way into a university. As to children of faculty, I'm wondering what you guys think. I think personally, this seems to me, based on what I've seen, probably the least empirically researched of maybe any of these admissions qualities. I also don't know the exact scale, but I'd have to imagine it's maybe the smallest of the four in terms of number of students admitted, maybe competing I would, with... I would guess, but... I, I would guess. I also think it's fair to assume that in many cases, these applicants, like you can say for legacy students as well, are academically well-qualified and could succeed at schools. However, there's the the question of whether that promotes meritocracy to let them in simply based on their connection to an alumni. Yeah, I'm not for it. I mean, I don't really see in in the case of children of faculty, at least in the case of the dean's list, there's, you know, a case that we might not like, but there is a case to be made for 
essentially allowing you to buy a spot with you know an enormous donation. It makes sense in terms of the the, the massive rewards that it can bring to the university in a limited set of circumstances. Yeah, I do. I do think the argument that a professor would ever move schools over a lack of preference for their children is probably not a strong one. So we've been through an alphabet soup of admissions <laughs> preferences right now. To to recap and really try to sum up, we've talked a lot about Harvard, and it's it's important that we kind of broaden our scope. But I'm going to violate what I just said, and I'm going to pose a question to you to end this. If you were in front of the board of overseers who runs Harvard University, and President Claudine Gay is in the audience, newly inducted, and they ask you, Jaden and Matthew, and maybe I'll answer too. What do we do about ALDC admissions? What succinctly would you tell them? I think first, I'd tell them to read their esteemed faculty member's paper, because it's pretty good. Read, uh, read Shetty. Just, just do it. And take some notes. Um, I think Harvard's not going to change some things. Getting $400 million from Kenny Griffin in exchange for a couple kids at the school is a bargain uh, that I have a hard time rebutting. But like pure legacy preferences, um, disproportionately white athletic recruitment, stuff like that, those can be feasibly changed. And I think two things might convince them. One, the arguments that legacy probably doesn't have a huge impact on donations and the money that schools get. Um, and two, that it might actually take away from some of Harvard's prestige. Because Matthew, as you talked about earlier, legacy is not associated, or the whole ALDC is not associated with better outcomes. And Harvard letting in another student who's more likely to do well, end up in a leadership position or at a great firm or win a Nobel Peace Prize is great for Harvard. Um, it's great for advertising, it's great for status, and it might be the only thing that can rival money for this institution. Here, here, I would say end the L, end the C, scale back the D. On athletics, uh, I like the idea of trying to diversify sports. I'm not sure how that will be done um, without violating the court's ruling on affirmative action um, or without acting as a cartel with the other Ivy League schools. Um, so a part of me on athletics would also come down to, you know, if Harvard is capable of achieving its diversity goals by getting rid of LDC or scaling back D, um, then keep the sports. If not, take a look at them, think about the ways in which we can diversify them try to bring in creative solutions, get Raj Chetty on the case, uh, or though maybe not, I don't know if his expertise is in that in particular, but- um, I'm, sure, I'm sure he could, he could add something. Yeah, so that, that, those, are my, those are my thoughts. Yeah, I think if I'm the board of overseers, I'm, I'm quite pleased with that recommendation. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll take a stab at it too. I think, Matthew, I'm, I'm broadly with you and Jaden as well, um, and L unambiguously. Uh, scale back the scope of Dean's interest list or special lists. Athletes, I'm going to punt a little bit. Um, go Crimson football. I'm always legal, yeah. always loyal. Um, I think that there needs to be a conversation between people who are who are athletes, who are who are in athletic departments, and who are in admissions to talk feasibly about how athletic departments can be made more diverse and potentially made smaller at Ivy League schools and also at other schools as well. Uh, children and faculty, I agree broadly that that should be curtailed or at least made more equitable. And then I think what I'll, what I'll say in general about ALDC is that 
I'm going to single out Harvard again because it, I think it does claim to be a leader among elite schools and it, it has a very specific mission. We were, talk, we were told about this when we were convocated, if that's the, oh, the yeah. word. Uh, the purpose of Harvard is to educate citizens and future citizen leaders. Um, cynically, I think that maybe Harvard is not always genuine about that goal. And I think maybe in future episodes, we'll talk more about how the Harvard Corp is more important than any professor or stakeholder. Yeah. However, optimistically, I'd like to think that we should still try to honor that. And if Harvard wants to be truly honoring the wishes of future citizens and citizen leaders, an Axios poll that came out recently found that three-fourths of young Americans, those future citizen leaders, say that it's not fair for colleges to consider legacy status to single out one yep. of those four. So I, I think that Harvard should listen to its, its future students and its future leaders. So I think I'll end it by saying that I'm stealing this quote from uh, an education expert. Um, but the problem in admissions today is nobody's fault, but everybody's responsibility. And I think today we've talked a lot about how we can, as one institution and institutions all over the country, get closer to actually honoring that responsibility. Thanks for listening.